here are all the raw scores. Now, like, let's spin the wheel. (laughs) Difficulty gets a 10 time multiplier. Execution gets a, like, is divided by 10. Welcome to Clocker Counter. Today is a live from Frisbeer edition. In the same room with me is Ryan Young. And we also have special guests, Andre Zaharik. Oh, I messed it up. (laughs) Andre Zaharik. Don't think about it too much. I Just nailed I it mind. right before we did this <laughs> podcast, re- right? I really don't mind. Zaharias. Nailed right. it. It was the Andre before that really got <laughs> me. I needed it to be by itself. So the, just to introduce you, like I've known you, I think, since 2013. You're a player from Munich, Germany. It's 2013, right? I think it's more like 2015. 2015. Um, I was recently thinking of uh, talking to Toby about this. And I think I've been playing for about seven or eight years. Got it. So I went to the second Jambritannia, if that helps. I think that's where we met. So what I'm trying to do, hopefully effectively, is explain why, how at a tournament with 60 players, many of whom are some of the top players in the world, Andre is the one we're talking to. <laughs> and that sounds very mean, but I don't mean it to be. <laughs> the reason why Andre's here is because even though you're a kind of less experienced player and you're not necessarily known for winning major tournaments or worlds, I think you're one of the most thoughtful players and you have a really, you had a great time in your game to be experienced enough to articulate the things that are interesting and important about freestyle, but you still have questions that are really helpful. So every time I talk to you, I feel like I get a lot of clarity about how to think about freestyle and how to ask the right questions. And you've also been really nice and supportive of the podcast and sending in questions and thinking about it and providing feedback. And so we're super happy to have you. But also, we had a great conversation about non-competitive formats, and we wanted to see if we could recreate some of that magic on the podcast. So let me send it to you, Ryan. Describe like the, the context of this conversation and like what we're going to be talking about today. For non-competitive formats. Yeah, and like I'm still I was not there for the non-competitive part of this. I still think it can be like the whole universe of like potentially competitive formats to like non-competitive. The whole premise of like we kind of assume because we've done it for 50, 60 years that the way freestyle is to be competed is we have routines set to music where we choreograph moves to song. And it's not obvious that that's necessarily the best system or the best system for measuring freestyle skill and there's lots of alternatives but we don't talk about them very much yeah so i believe what andre and i were talking about before was you're at a festival and you have a group of freestylers and you want to show off the best show possible like making routines is probably too much work and maybe not the best thing to do in the moment and there are other ways to like combine and other objectives we can try and like achieve that are smaller than building a whole routine that look just as good to like uh, layman. So let me ask you, Andre, like, was there a time and how early was this time where you thought to yourself, why do we compete the way we can? Mm, so generally, I agree with our competition format just as a way to legitimize the, the sport itself. I mean, it's a good way of measuring head to head in whatever quant- uh, quality we're measuring who's the better player. But sometimes that isn't what we need. So, for example, in this festival format, we want to just show our sport to other people and we don't really care too much about who's the better player. And I think to a layperson, what is good and bad 
has different criteria than what we see. Well, first, let me challenge the premise that the current system is good at measuring who the better players are. And <laughs> Routines overrated. And is that why everyone's jamming? It's sort of easy. It's like This is like a rare time where I feel like I'm in a great position to say this because I would love to say that our current competitive format favors the best players because it's been very good to me. But I'll give a story without giving any names that hopefully explain why I don't think this is the common view. But I was having a debate with some top tier freestylers recently about how good Ryan Young is at freestyle. And my main argument was he's considered one of the best jammers and I think he's one of the best competitors ever. So what else is there? And the people I was debating disagreed with me, which means there's something else out there that is important to them that isn't being measured in competition. And at least in that case, also not in jamming. So it's sort of interesting to think about like what are ways that we could test freestylers and kind of decide who is better at different kinds of skills rather than the kinds of skills we reward now. And one last like digression about all this, I think it's interesting and it's come up recently in worlds with kind of questions about the new judging system of how much of freestyle in the competitive routine format is completely divorced from freestyle in the jamming context. So for Agreed. instance, like multiple discs is the easiest example. Like lots of routines have multiple discs, but you would never jam with multiple discs. So if you think about competition as here's a way to test people's skills at the base activity called freestyle, which is jamming, and yet it's gotten really far from that. And a lot of what we do in routines is stuff we would never do in the context of a jam. And like, what does that mean? And also your favorite freestyler won't be the person who always wins. They'll be your favorite freestyler for a different reason that you get from jamming with them. Agreed. Agreed. So why don't we start with you, Ryan? What's a competitive or non-competitive format that you would be interested in trying out? I would want one that doesn't focus on diff. So there's always music at every event and it's like maybe like a music focus. So it doesn't matter. I would want something where the music is obvious. So it's like a, it's like a breakdance battle mm -hmm. where every eight or every, like the cycle of music is very consistent. And so all you're doing is your moves on the music. Hmm. But would everyone have to play to the same music, for instance? Uh, it's more... So it would be a break. A break. Like a, yeah, in a breakdance battle. So it's give me more background on a breakdance battle. I believe it's... I don't know, you can probably explain it better, Andre, than I So breakdancing comes from like the beginning of hip hop where people would find like a slice of a funk song, for example, where it's just the drums playing and they would have that on two turntables and basically have that loop going forever mm -hmm. while people would dance to it. That's why it's called breakdancing or b-boys, b-girls. Yeah. They're dancing to the, the drum break. And... Yeah, so it's always 8s or 16s because that's just how pop music works. Yeah, but I would assume that an element of a breakdancing competition is, I don't know if difficulty is the right word, but kind of like the skills displayed in the moves that they choose to do to the music. Yeah, so it depends on what level of breakdancing you're at. But I think like on the street, it's more like groovy and just like, who can match the music. I do think there's an interesting thing that we've talked about 
and it's kind of in the context of like how could you handicap freestyle so it was really about how you perform given your skill level but a version of that is sort of like if we could equalize the kinds of moves you can do who can build the best routine to the music because like right now if you're really good you can kind of ignore a lot of other things and rely on your skill like to, bully the yeah. other competition yeah yeah so like it doesn't you could have a terrible routine in theory but because you're so much better than everyone else you could still win now i still think like we had this conversation with daniel i still think you might as well make a good routine because you can do all the hard things within the context of routine but i like the idea of you know to oversimplify it, i think this would be boring i wouldn't like it but if everyone had to play to the same three minute song and you didn't get rewarded at all for a level of difficulty who could make something th that was the most, I don't know, aesthetically pleasing or the most artistic within those constraints would be a cool format. It would. It's, yeah. I think a cool thing about like the, the breakdowns thing, the eight bars is the, the time constraint means you have to kind of think about what you're doing. Like anyone or a lot of players could do cool shit just by re-revving and whatever but just knowing that you have these eight bars and maybe playing to your strength and using time like the beats of the uh, of the music people are aiming their intent it's like you're adding intention for people because i think right now people build a routine and they're like here's what i always do or here's what i do in jamming and they just do it again but if we force people onto the music then they'll have to like think critically about their yeah. I have a question about breakdancing. Before I ask it, I want to give a little more context to this whole segment idea, which is one thing that has interested you for a long time, and I've been a latecomer to appreciating the idea, is if the competitive format differed more or changed more over time, one, like different players would be more successful at different times based on the format, which would be kind of interesting. And it would almost force freestylers to develop new skills because once a certain competition format came into vogue or became the def default you'd have to evolve to perform well at that and that would kind of push you to grow rather than i built a routine 20 years ago and i'm just going to keep reshuffling it to new music which can be a lot of what freestyle routines are today it's like evolution it like forces you to adapt or you die out yeah and of course our favorite game which andre <laughs> actually shares our appreciation for the great dota 2 <laughs> they change the mechanics of the game i don't want to go into too much detail what that means but the game changes pretty regularly and players have to adapt to it and it's kind of interesting how in dota 2 the main complaint is that the game isn't changing enough and they're <laughs> always like where's the next patch like what well, this game is boring let's do something different whereas freestyle seems to have the very opposite impulse that people are very concerned about change to the status quo and it's kind of interesting how you know people in two different communities can react very differently to change but here's my breakdancing question so in breakdancing i assume you don't know the music ahead of time no idea uh <laughs> you don't you don't okay let's at least assume that you don't because i've always wanted to know how you could make jamming a more competitive format but it's too easy for people to kind of cheat and like figure out a way to prepare. And one obvious solution, but not very good one is to not know the music ahead of time. But I'd have to think just like how I imagined in freestyle, I could build a three minute routine and have a reasonably good chance of cramming it into whatever music you're playing. Then 
you know, like I would still, it would still be worth it for me to build that three minute routine, even though I didn't know the music, I think. And I imagine the same could be true for a break dancer. Like you don't know what the song is going to be, but you know that like, here are the five things that I'm probably going to do no matter what. So I think break dancing is a bit different from freestyle because in break dancing, it feels like you're, you're dancing, you're much more, you're directly connected to the music. Yeah. Whereas in freestyle, you always have this disc, this foreign object between you and the music. Yeah. So you're never going to get as much expression to the music as you can with breakdance or with dance in, in general. Yeah. Because there's this, this massive hurdle in the way, which is the disc. Yeah. <laughs> but I wonder if we just are bad. We're, we're, definitely, we're definitely bad. Are we bad or is it harder than we think? <laughs> I'm trying to give an analogy, but there is definitely a problem in all of our conversations. It's like, we don't know because we're all bad. Like, <laughs> yeah. What would it be like and how different could it be if we were all much better at this? We're definitely bad dancers. Oh, like, <laughs> bad, bad disc dancers. Don't get me started. <laughs> so I'm surprised that that was your first answer, Ryan, because it seems... One, very different from the kinds of experiments that I know you've done before. So for anyone who doesn't know, when Ryan hosted Palach every year, there was wildly different judging systems. And the one you just gave me was a lot closer to what we do now than I thought it would be. Do you have any reason for that? Or are the crazier ones coming later? Those are competitive formats, though. So I was thinking of one that's like less competitive. Okay. Well, I'll pass it to you then, Andre. What's one of your ideas that you had? All right, so I think how we got to this uh, this topic at all was can I uh, can I advertise our event? Yeah, of yeah. course. All right, so twentieth of May uh, in Munich, you have to be there. Um, it's called the Jam Session, and I mean, in our group, we were talking about okay, the event frisbee events always have to have jam in the name. So we just uh, we just found something that has jam in the name, Jam Session. And yeah, we've got musicians in our group. So we were talking about what is a jam session? Jam sessions are always non-competitive by nature. Like who gets up on an open stage night and starts trying to like battle everyone off the stage. It's about cooperating and building something bigger. Um, yeah. So to get back and then, okay. And then we decided, okay, we're going to, we're not going to have just a hat tournament because that was the, the original idea. Uh, we're going to try and think of some new format, which is non-competitive, but which can show our sport to spectators because um, the place we're hosting this tournament is the Theresienwiese, where the Oktoberfest is usually, or it is every year. And um, there's a lot of people passing by. There's other freestyle communities like rollerblading, longboarding, and we're connected to them. And Toby knows people who jam, uh, jam music in Munich, and we're gonna have them come around. So how can we make this into like our jam, uh, which isn't just jamming as we do it usually. Um, all right, so my game idea or our game idea uh, was uh, you form a queue and the first three people start jamming uh, to music, and after a certain time or when some certain event happens, you could do like first drop or every minute or something. The first person to enter the jam leaves and the next person from the queue enters. I like it. So pretty much everyone 
has four other partners and they get to be in the jam for three minutes, say, for example. And they're not trying to fit in some format um, or whatever. They, they're just free to do whatever they want. And the only motivation is to look cool in front of their peers and to represent our sport to whoever's passing by or whoever's hanging out and watching them play. And so there's no winner, right? Exactly. Yeah. I really like it because one, it is already a completely foreign setup. Like it's completely different than how we do it now. My main concerns are that the people waiting in the queue are like, why are we starting another jam <laughs> over on the side? And, but I also think this concept could easily be turned into an, a competitive format of some kind. Like it could sure. be while the three people are playing, everyone else is in the middle of a vote of who's getting kicked <laughs> off. And then they get kicked off and a new person comes in and then you go through the queue and like whoever, I mean, yeah, like whoever's last person standing <laughs> is really the winner. Just keep kicking people until you're next in the in line. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I have a name for this format. What's it's that? the jam cypher. Why cypher? So I think cypher is a dance term okay. where it's like you stand in a circle and one person goes in and then they do their thing and the next person like combos in and it's like Got just it. like mm -hmm. a, a cue that cycles through. Mm-hmm. I do like that it's a good way of having a jam that is for the audience because the fact that you have three people jamming, which is already a good size rather than having like a bunch of different jams, which can be like the audience doesn't know what to focus on, but also there's a time limit on how long you're in that jam. So you're really motivated to do your best. And it also gives some of the audience new combinations to look at. So I think you really nailed it on building a jam format that could be more appealing to an audience. And so you said, why don't, why don't the other jammers start their own thing? Um, they're waiting to, to get into this big jam that everyone's watching. Yeah. And uh, the byproduct of that is that they're also watching this actively. Yeah. Because what also sometimes happens is, okay, maybe at small hat tournaments, not so often, but that the tournament kind of happens off to the side. Yeah. And people are just, they just want to play. Yeah. And in this format, everyone's watching and it makes the jam more important. Yeah. That's happening. There's also ways to make that. It's like, it's a rule. You can't go start another <laughs> jam or this is really good for like a festival that might be space limited. So like, here's our jam space. Mm. There's three people in at a time and you have to wait. So I love that idea. Before I talk about other non-competitive formats, I'm going to do a very brief history of potlatch formats <laughs> that you can correct me on. So when just to kind of like put a lay of the land, like there is another kind of common freestyle competitive format that Andre just mentioned, which is the hat tournament. And I think the hat tournament in part was designed to be a solution to having routines and like the pressure to choreograph. But I think there's a couple downsides to the hat tournament. One is that, you know, you might, it would be cool if like you and I could plan to play at a tournament together, but know that we had to jam, but like the hat kind of eliminates that possibility. And also people still build stuff for hat tournaments, even if they have five minutes. And sometimes they do things like they call the names and then you have to go play. Like that's kind of a good solution. But what were you going to say, Andre? So um, our first idea with the hat tournament was um, something that we've done before, which is pull the names out just before they play. Yeah. So it's like everyone's sitting there, you pull two names. It's like, all right, James and Ryan, go. Yeah. So you don't have a chance to build anything. Yeah, we've done that too. I also like the idea of seated hats and I wish they happened more, especially co-op seated hats. So and you have like an, like an A and a B pool. Yeah, you have like, well, it's more like you have an A 
have with all the best players, like a B have all the middle players and a C right. have with all like the newest players. Mm-hmm. And that way there's kind of a more equal skill level. But also I feel like a lot of times it turns out that whoever was on the fringe in the B hat who partners up <laughs> with someone in the hat like always win. So it doesn't necessarily solve the problem, but it's kind of an interesting way to do it. But as far as I know, you know, like arguably there's only three competitive formats. There's our traditional routine format, the hat format, and then now like there's kind of a turbo shred battle format that has different flavors. And it's kind of interesting that that's becoming a more popular and common competitive format, but it wasn't one that was very common at all when we started playing. So potlatch events, and I'll add one other event, uh, Beach Dollars has had a interesting competitive format that I love for a long time, which is there are some traditional divisions, like there's a pairs division and a turbo shred division, but the real reward of the Beach Dollars tournament is that there are specific named awards that everyone votes on, and then they're distributed at the end. So like there's like the butter roll award going to the best roller. It was like the best set. a lot of them have cool names. I'm not gonna remember all the cool names, like the best setter award or like the best thrower award. And at the end of the tournament, everyone's been playing together, everyone's been jamming, they all just vote. And the winner of the most categories, I think they've done it two ways. Sometimes it's like whoever gets the most points in every category, or sometimes it's its own category. The the winner is like the Zen master who's like voted the best player. And like to sound really arrogant, like the the two awards that I'm most proud of in my life are my two Zen Master trophies. Cause it's like I was jamming all weekend. I'm like being voted as like the Zen Master. And then if you look at the name of Zen Masters, it's like Dave Murphy, Mac Othier, Jake Othier, Dave Schiller. Like these are the people that win this. And it's pretty cool that that happens. And there's also some other positive ancillary effects. There are awards that are available to people who are not normally going to win a tournament. So like, um, Bob Orr could win a tournament. He doesn't compete a lot, but like he almost always wins best setter. So it's like really cool that, like, you know, you have this like super skill that you demonstrate that normally doesn't get rewarded, but it gets rewarded at this tournament. And then the last thing I think that's cool about it is it incentivizes you, incentivizes you to play with everybody because if you like want their votes in your category, you need to be doing them. And it's also fun to try to win things. Like it's kind of like I'm focused on butter rolls or best setter or best kicker. And you're like, I'm going to just focus on my kicks. And there's just like cool like game theory about it. Like, oh, Ryan's here. Like maybe best setter is too hard. Like I should try to do like best thrower or something. So I always thought that was a, a really cool format. So polish formats. I'm going to try to explain them and then you tell me the things I got wrong. Okay. So one I remember was... You were basically rewarded for having the most touches. Well, and I don't know if it was by the routine or by the combo, but like you needed to, t- like it didn't matter how hard what you did, it was like how many times did you touch the disc in the combo? That's how you got more points. Mm-hmm. What am I missing there? I think that was, it was, it was probably like a multiplier. Yeah. Yeah. It was super cool though, because it was a totally different way of thinking about it and it incentivized a kind of play that's generally well respected. Like you were really well off doing kind of like a one touch between you and your partner where it's like, I'm brushing, you're tipping, I'm brushing, you're tipping, I'm kicking. Like it's generated a lot of movement and a lot of like ping ponging in a way that I thought was super cool. So that was one format. And there's going to be a theme here, which is there's a lot of arbitrariness in these formats. Like they're not necessarily (laughs) rewarding something that is intrinsically good, but 
like aspects of it are good and it challenges you to play differently. And that's what I think is the value. It's like, this doesn't necessarily get to who's the best player, but it's like who figured out a cool way to use the system. But one of my favorite ones you did was the best way to explain it is as you did moves, your hard moves were increasing the speed of your car. And as soon as you had a drop, your car went down to zero. So the, this incentivized heavily long sequences that were well executed. So for instance, if you dropped it at the beginning, no problem. If you dropped it at the end, no problem. Because at the beginning, you had no speed anyways. It's not a big deal to take a stop. At the end, you were almost at the end of your journey. It didn't matter if you messed up. But in the middle, it was critical for you to catch it. And I think what was cool about this is one thing that's so important to building flow is catching a lot of combos in a row and not having those drops every second or third or fourth combo but it's also arbitrary like a team that had seven drops in the first 10 seconds but then never dropped would beat a team that had one drop in the middle but it was just cool to think about what are i know there is a couple other ones you did that i wasn't able to attend so like what are some of the other highlights i think my favorite of all time was the fall of the leader one that I wasn't there. You for missed that. it. That was your event. You it would was, have crushed it. It was built for me. And <laughs> yeah. I wasn't there to take advantage of it. So tell us about Follow the Leader. Okay, so it's based on this game called Dixit, where it's a car game. And the idea is you give a clue and you want all everyone else guesses, and you want exactly one person to guess the answer. So if no one guesses the answer, you you lose. Yeah. And if everyone guesses the answer, everyone wins but you. So it's like this is it's a disadvantage to give like a really good clue or a really bad clue you have to give a clue just good enough that only one person gets it so what's smart about this is horse is a hard game to play in freestyle because one you can just do your crazy unique combo that you only hit one out of a hundred times but it's just the one you hit right then it's impossible to copy so this like incentivizes you like it can't be too hard because one person has to be able to do it but it can't be too easy because if everyone can do it you're out of luck yep Pretty cool format. Who won that in the end? Pavel. Pavel won that. Yep. Very cool. Lots of cool strategy in that. It's also a good game because kind of different skill levels can be successful at it, yeah. I think. Um, so that's a pretty good one. Were there any other Palatch formats I missed? There was the one year we had all, everything was uh, mandatory. And it was like things, you ch- it was like a checklist and you checked them off as you went or the uh, judge would. Okay, I have at least two uh formats but i want to see andre do you have another format you want to pitch so i was talking about uh to to people about what you were talking about before with um criteria judging people by by different criteria but maybe not telling them what the criterion is Mm. before but um people just jam and at the end of the weekend you just say okay we were looking for most brushes. <laughs> yeah. It's like a hat tournament, but the objectives come out of the hat. Just guessing. Yeah, exactly. We don't even know. Yeah. Well, I thought about some a variation of that, which is another solution to the routine problem of like you don't know the mandatories until you go out, basically. Mm-hmm. And so and there had to be enough mandatories that it would kind of <laughs> obliterate your routine. And it would have to be like the thing that'll come up again when I explain my format, it's hard to know the level of specificity in mandatories. And there's everyone's game is so unique and a sport as small as ours that there's lots of normal moves that just lots of people don't do. 
And so it's hard to just be like, okay, like you have to do a bad attitude. There's going to be lots of teams that are like, oh, I just don't do that move. Like I do a bunch of other moves. But you kind of mentioned this earlier, I think. Like it could be there's 10 mandatories and you only have to do six of them. Like there's lots of different little tools you can use to deal with that problem. But I think that's cool. But I definitely am intrigued by this idea of not knowing ahead of time what's valuable. Because I think as soon as you know the system, you try to game it, right? Yeah. And if you can't know the system, like even if we can't know the system, then everyone just does their thing. And then at the end, someone randomly wins, I guess. I always thought it'd be cool if like in our, even in our current system, if the multiplier for each category was randomized. (laughs) And like even while you were competing, you didn't know. Like at the end of the round, it's like, here are all the raw scores. Now, like, let's spin the wheel. (laughs) Difficulty gets a 10 time multiplier. Execution gets a like, is divided by 10. It's like, you can do all kinds of crazy stuff and be like, well, who knows what's going to actually matter here. But I'm trying to think like if that were the system, what you would do, because I still think you, you would kind of be incentivized to do the best at everything so that you were protected on all grounds, but you couldn't like game the system. You couldn't be like, I'm only going to focus on diff. You'd have to be like, okay, I have to do a good job of everything because any one of these components could be the important part. Or you could try and find criteria where every team wins in one category. We've talked about that one. So I'm trying to think of what we had there. Like there was like a version we talked about where it's like, okay, here are all the teams. The best artistry team oh, yeah. was this. Like the best difficulty team was this and the next execution team was this. And kind of like with the beat stylers format, like different teams could succeed in different ways. And I think that would be pretty cool. Yeah. It's like the the beach stylers, like mob up idol thing where like teams can go specifically for that one category. Yeah. And that's like the thing we were 200 brushes yes. and they're like, oh, it wasn't brushes this tournament. Yeah. <laughs> because in a way, like if, if it's non-com- non-competitive, then either no one wins or everyone wins. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing, right? Yeah. I like that idea. So some of my format ideas and I'll first do one that's very related to yours. This is really Graf's idea, and he came up with it in the context of individual battle where it makes a lot of sense, but I feel like there's a version of it that could apply in team formats, which is a format where you could ban moves tailored to your opponents. So you could be like, I'm playing against Kuba Radwanski. She can't do a lefty layers kick. And like... The hard part of this format is what I mentioned earlier of how specific are you allowed to be or more, more to the point, how general are you allowed to be? Can you just be like, no rules, like no catches, but I think like if there's some version where you can be like, all right, you're allowed to ban. It has to be like, you have to name a side and you have to name an appendage. It's like no righty guidance, no lefty kicks, no like righty scarecrow, whatever it is. And his graph, I think one of the things he really cares about that I appreciate about his perspective is it's not like a lot of people can seem really good. It's almost like the animals that like enlarge themselves to look bigger and scarier mm-hmm. than they are. Everyone when they're playing to their strengths can seem really good. But what's interesting is to see the depths of people's game when they're pushed to their limits. And I think in general, the best players, they this format wouldn't even phase them. It's like ban whatever you want. I'm going to be fine. But there's a lot of players that are perceived as being some of the top players. Kuba Kubana is not one of them, by the way. I think she's got a really deep game. I was just thinking of the turbo shred and she did like a bunch of sick lefty lurch kicks. But like some players you would be like, once you don't have that, what do you got for me? So instead of banning, okay, this isn't uh, an event idea, but like a little jam game that I play with Danny Weinberg from Munich a lot, Love him. which is... Uh, 
yeah, just set challenges for the other person in the jam. Yeah. Uh, like everyone, everyone likes to stay in their comfort zone to feel big and good. Uh, so you know what they can do. Set something that is achievable in the jam. Yeah. Maybe either it's some, some move that they hardly ever do or it's one that they haven't ever done, but you know they can, they can learn in this jam without destroying it. So, yeah. What is the know. objective people ask you to do? It's so varied. <laughs> um, we don't... I, I don't know if we've ever, like, had the same objective multiple times. We tried to mix it up. You remember, like, what was the last objective you had? Even if it's super boring. Okay, so this is very specific, but Danny loves swoops. Mm -hmm. And I can't do them. Define I, a swoop for me. Uh, like the... Or, or is it a scoop? The upside down where you where you pull the disc. Got it. Yeah, like a Saturn kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. so the disc is upside down and you're using the rim. Exactly. Dan, Danny loves them. Yeah. The, like where the disc is kind of over steep yeah. in, in the upside down angle. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so he wants me to get into it as well. So he's he tries to force me to do that every now and then. So we play with <laughs> objectives a lot and... Some of them are more common to the community. So a game that we play, and this is definitely a great non-competitive format, is Hoop Factory. So I don't know what we've ever talked about, but Hoop Factory is when... There's different variations on it, but at least... Like one version is there has to be a hoop before any move. Mm -hmm. Some version is like who can get the most hoops in this co-op. Like There's lots of different ways to do it, but the main idea is it's all about hoops for a while. And it's a good one because it's great at getting people involved in a mob op, especially. It's also great for teaching positioning, I think. Like you have to kind of learn to know where the disc is gonna to be to be in the right place to hoop. But my personal favorite for Hoop Factory is there has to be a double hoop in every mob op, where like it has to go through two people's hoops before you're allowed to catch it. But I guess a big part of Hoop Factory, maybe the some versions, there has to be a hoop before the combo ends. Yep. What's your percentage on that? I think we could do a hundred percent hoop factory, especially yeah. on the beach. Yeah, we usually play it at the beach. Yeah, where the disc is flat, and you have a lot more time. I think we're getting like eight hoops between <laughs> everyone. The leg over one is the one I struggle with. Uh, well, it's harder. I mean, you have shorter legs <laughs> and less of a reach. I like the double leg over hoop. This is one thing that I'm like super interested in. Leg over hoops in general, I don't think are done as much as they should be. Well, the handstand hoop. The handstand. I actually remember a quick story. The first time I saw Ted Overhouse play, I was walking into the meadow and he did a perfect handstand. It was really more like a cartwheel where the disc sure. went through during the kind of handstand portion. And I saw that and I thought, that is the greatest freestyle I've ever seen in my life. I've never seen you do that move. I know. It's so funny. Like now I don't really have that much interest in it. I don't think it's that cool. But at the time I was like, wow, like this guy did a cartwheel and someone threw the disc through his leg. Just tells you, it's almost like, I don't know, I don't have a good analogy, but when you're a new freestyler and you just have no concept of like what's easy and what's hard, like that, it's kind of hard to get the timing right, but also it wasn't really Teddy's responsibility to make sure that worked out. But if you're, if you're playing for spectators, then yeah, it doesn't really matter what's objectively viewed as hard or objectively hard. Um, it's what impresses you the most. I agree so, with that, but one of my pet peeves is when people think there's this massive gap between what lay people perceive as hard and what freestylers perceive as hard. Mm -hmm. It's like, I guarantee you a double spinning barrel guys, because I do this all the time, gets a lot of wows from people <laughs> of course. when they walk by. But people are like, no, 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 you need to 
throw a long distance and catch it behind the back. People love that. They understand. I'm like, no, they're pretty much more impressed with the dust than their eyes. I think high intensity athletic moves will always look impressive over no matter like what skids. you're doing. True. I agree with the yeah. skid thing. With skid is like the straw man argument of this. Because oh, okay. I always defend, like no one's criticizing Pablo about this. Whenever people say like, oh, people don't like technical moves. I'm like, go to a tournament with Pavel and tell me that people don't like technical moves. I think maybe uh, the difference is um, how much you let the disc work or and how much you let your body work. I get that. Like the body is what attracts people, not the disc work. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I agree with that. And one thing I add to that is like a lot of people are like, no one cares about against. I'm like, me neither. I just care that, like, especially if you're at a high level, I really believe that either against is easier or it does not matter if it's against or with. And so I'm not going to penalize a move for the lay audience because it's against. I'm like, what is the aesthetic of it? Like, if it helps you do something cool, it's irrelevant that it's against. But I don't know, we're digressing here. This is a whole other <laughs> podcast topic, but it's something I feel very strongly about because I think there's been a certain vilification of like certain kinds of moves where people say like, oh, like lay audiences don't understand that. And I'm like, I don't, it's almost like, oh, one more like analogy. <laughs> it's like when people say they don't understand the non-linear diff multiplier. I'm like, they don't need to understand the specifics of it. They just need to understand that the higher you are on the diff scale, the greater the reward. So I don't need you to understand what Pavel is doing when he's doing a crazy like wiper, double trouble type against move. I just need you to see that the disc is moving in this really beautiful way that you've never seen a disc move in your life. And like, that's the part that's appealing to the person. So again, it's like, you don't have to understand the mechanics of what he's doing. You just have to find it very cool. But with that said, a skid is not that cool to like anybody. So I, you know, I agree with that. Um, other non-competitive objectives that we've done going off of what you and Danny do, we did one that was very hard where every combo had to, had to end with a double that was set by the other person. That was a hard game. Oh yeah, I remember that. I think it would not be that hard on the beach, but we were doing it in a meadow with not such good wind and it was pretty challenging. Well, we didn't do this together. No, we did this together. Okay. We did it at Duke one time. Okay. Like early on, I think even before okay. we had Duke players. It was like when I first moved to Durham. But it's a cool game because it's really, I think if you were listening to this podcast, you would think our focus is on the double spinning part. But the focus is actually on the set. Because like that's the part of it that was hard, is to set your partner really well for a double set. And one justification or like why I was interested in that is one thing I thought Matt and Jake did that was really impressive that no one really ever appreciated was, you know, they'd go out and do their routines and all their doubles, they were setting each other. And people didn't really appreciate that that was 10 times harder than setting yourself. Um, anyways. Okay, I'm going to go more it. on the objectives. Everyone has done an objective like last catch. And when last catch is called, everyone focuses up. And I think that focus really improves. So like That's like the advantage of having an objective every jam. Like we do, James and I do the, or James does, he'll call out 10 in a row. And that's the objective. You got to catch 10. 10 in a row and the jam just elevates we had a whole instant. day like a three-hour <laughs> jam of 10 in a row with will and ray in the spin factory before this tournament and it was super fun yeah. it was also cool because you could kind of have a running average of like what do i usually get up to and there was a big gap between everybody on like skill level of how regularly you could get how high and there's also a thing that i always like 
in any competitive format, or it's something I think about a lot with the kinds of formats Ryan is interested in, where there's always this backstop of pride. So it's like, I could always catch 10 in a row if I made them simple enough. But at, at a certain point, you have to still make it the freestyle you want it to be. So when you say 10 in a row, it's really like, I'm going to focus on catching 10 in a row, but I'm not going to completely obliterate my game in order to do it. So this was another thing when, when we were thinking about this Q game. Maybe the next person only leaves when the, the disc is dropped. But of course, that would mean that everyone would do exactly this, just dumb down their game until, of course, they're always going to catch it. And then yeah. you've achieved the opposite of what you wanted to do, make it cool for the spectators. Now it's boring. So, and then you get the time constraint from the, the breakdance <laughs> battle. So I think, I think that's where I would have faith in pride. And maybe it's just my own personality and it wouldn't work among other people because they don't feel the same way. But I would still try hard stuff, even if I knew as soon as I dropped it, I was out. Because at a certain point, it's like, what's the point of doing this if I'm not trying things that I'm interested in? The incentive is wrong. Maybe you graduate out of the jam instead of fail out. Like when you hit your big move, then you leave. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Interesting. It's like, it's almost like that's the cool thing. You go and you hit your move. And it's like, it's like the movie scene where they're playing. You, you walk onto the field. Like, hey, throw me one. You do some sick move and just throw the disc back and walk off. And <laughs> It's like a mic drop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a way better way to put it. It's put like on your sunglasses. <laughs> That's pretty cool. So one other like premise for coming up with non-competitive formats I was thinking about, which I kind of mentioned earlier, like what's something we want to incentivize and how do we build a competitive format around it? So like one random idea I had that we talked about yesterday was if what if every time you caught a combo, the next combo was worth twice as much. The idea being this makes a huge incentive to catch a lot in a row. And it's kind of related to the 10 in a row things like and the judging system you know it's about keeping a string of catches together. Now there's a little bit of a problem of like, especially if it was like the world's people would really abuse it. Like I'm just going to catch 10 self-set under the legs <laughs> and then do it. So it wouldn't necessarily work. And maybe there's some boundaries you could build. Like each combo has to be a minimum five difficulty in 10 seconds or that's too long. There's a mathematical equation that makes this work. Yeah, there's a w I think there's a way that you could do it that would be really cool. But I definitely like the idea that you're incentivized to build up that flow because that's so important in jamming and it's something that I still think people underappreciate. Like there's so many times I'm in a mob op where like a mistake I see, it's like, ooh, we were really, we had a really good run there and that's what you decided to do. <laughs> it's like it's like when you throw a counter upside down to the newest clock only player and like, hmm, you did that right there, didn't you? <laughs> it's a really big mistake. <laughs> Um, yeah, so that's what I like. Uh, I'm trying to think of other ones. Like, what if the catch was the only thing you got dipped for? Yeah, I think I would like that. I was thinking it should be the high watermark of the phrase, not the average. That would, it makes it's easier to judge, and it's probably mostly the catch. I like that. That is true a lot, but the problem with it is it incentivizes really ugly kinds of play that I don't like. But the question is like, why are you? choosing this non-competitive format over just doing a regular old hat tournament. Are you doing it for the spectators or are you doing it because you're bored of doing the same thing over and over again or because maybe you're just not interested in having a winner at the end? No, I used to be like in the early days when we were on jammers on the net and we were fighting about stuff like this. I used to be way more in the, we have to please the spectators line of sight. But now I'm like, 
until I see the spectators, I'm not so worried about them in some sense, which, you know, you could always argue, well, the reason there's not spectators is you don't care about it. So I get it. Like I, I care in some sense. And again, my view is kind of the, the gap between what spectators want and what free sellers want is a lot smaller than we tend to think, but I don't know. I think fun one, it's just a fun podcast topic. Like that's one reason I'm interested in it Two, Like it is kind of crazy that we've had the same competitive format virtually unchanged for, I think it's at least 40 something years, maybe 50 something years. And three, the kind of change for change sake is good. That's something Ryan's really taught me from the video game world. And then lastly is this idea of having different competitive formats would force people to learn different things and it would let different people succeed at different times. Because even for me, like obviously this competitive format has been perfectly fine for me. Although it's more like I grew up in this competitive format. So like I developed as a player to succeed in this format, which is my favorite like reverse causality problem. But I also feel like I wish I could show how much more I can do, but it's like, I mean, we, we talk about this all the time. You're building routines like, yeah, I could do all this cool stuff or I can just catch a double. And like the double is a 95% success rate for a high score or this cool wacky thing I'm excited about doing is worth nothing. Like even today, I was joking with Ryan that every time I'm playing and the routine gets off, I'm like, oh, now I can just score a bunch of points. <laughs> like the routine's out the window. Like, okay, well, my, my upside is way higher without the routine than it is with the routine, especially if you've done at least a little bit of routines, you get like those routine points and then just let me go crazy and I have a better shot. Like I would love the band event. Like I would love to play where it's like, I'll let you band seven things, 10 things, 15 things. Mm-hmm. And I'm not worried about it. And you don't even know what they are. Yeah. <laughs> now we're talking. That'd be funny because you'd have to like, all your combos would have to be very thematic. Okay, the banning would would be more more like the the incentives. You don't know what the what the incentives are. But if, no, I like it. If you didn't know what was banned, every combo, like let's say you get three combos and you don't know what's banned, it's like okay, all my combos have to have a theme because if they're too broad, there's a chance Definitely. I hit a banned element. Damn. So it's like okay, I'm gonna do a tipping combo. I'm gonna do like a brushing rolling combo, and I'm gonna do a flat combo to hopefully and hopefully avoid like some kind of band element would be kind of cool or like every 30 seconds uh a word is drawn from a hat which says brush or roll or well we were talking i wanted to do a routine and this is still in the air like this could happen i want to do a routine where a third party so like let's say it's ryan ryan's in my routine i send you out to the audience and the audience can't know what the deal is here and you hand out cards and you say write down the best combo you hit today and they write it on the cards then you take those cards and you blow them up huge <laughs> and you put it on a canvas and while we're doing the routine you just put out a new card it's like okay like here's the combination you have to hit now ryan and it's like you know andre's best combo of the day you have to hit it's kind of like some kind of karaoke like freestyle karaoke or something also good i like it because it sets a baseline and people are really good at comparing things. And like, if people have a baseline, you'd be like, oh, he's not even as good as Andre. Well, I also think there hasn't been... <laughs> That's really... the opposite of non-competitive. <laughs> there hasn't been like a participatory routine where there's like some kind of element where either the audience or the freestyle or like some aspect of the community is involved in the creation of a routine in real time. The heckle jam. Like, oh, <laughs> heckle jam would be great. But any kind of like real time routine where what's happening during the routine is influenced by something that's happening in real time, I think would be 
a pretty cool thing. And it would be a good test of skill in a way that, because again, like I think you can present yourself as a lot better than you are in a routine. You could just change the music uh, every, every minute and people have to actually adapt to the music, try and really express themselves to the music. Like what would you do if, if, if it was punk rock or ambient or whatever? Oh, that would be interesting. <laughs> and then only how you react to the music is judged. I think about that when there's hat tournaments with random music and I'm like, do they know how important it is what random song is selected? <laughs> it's crucially important. I want to say one more thing on this idea of like how routines can hide a lot. And this is, I'm going to like pick on the team, but I'm really trying to promote them. So like one of my favorite freestyle routines or one of my favorite freestyle teams of the last decade, even though they've only played twice is Yuval and Daniel from Israel. And this is a compliment. I hope it comes out the right way. They play as a team with their routine, like 10 times better than they are. Like when I see them on the pool, I'm like, that's a team that could win the world championship. I don't care what their names are, how much experience they have, because they build amazing routines that showcase their skill perfectly well. And in some sense, that's a feature. And in some sense, that's a bug. So it's a feature and that it's really cool if you do what they do and you put in the time to build an unstoppable routine that could beat like far more experienced players. But it's also kind of a bug of the system that like you don't have to be the best player as it's proven time and time again to win a freestyle tournament. You have to either get lucky, there's always a little bit of luck involved, or like have the ability to put in the time and have the like knowledge to know what to do with that time, which they clearly have. I mean, preparation should also be rewarded. And yeah, that's no, happening. Like, that's exactly what's happening here. Yeah, I'm it's trying fine. to be careful. Like, because also, by the way, Daniel Pinhas, I don't know how to say his name properly, but I know his nickname is Pinhas, play, is playing out of his mind right now. And I think even just from watching Turbo Shred today, he's entered the elite player threshold. So it's like a little unfair to use them right now. But especially in 2018, when they played together, I'd never seen him play before. And even you all, who kind of grew up a little bit in the New York scene in 2015. Like neither one of them was super experienced and they had a routine that could have won the world championship. It was so good. And I was like, wow, that's incredible. And it's almost just lucky that lucky for someone like me, that more people haven't abused that. Like we have a big disadvantage as Americans in that we don't have anyone in our cities that we can play with. Like, even if we play together, we usually don't get that many days to practice. Like if you're a, like a good player, and you have another good player in your town and you're willing to do the work of building a routine for a year, there's no reason you couldn't be extremely successful. You might need, and like this is to their credit, you might need a little bit of that genius to like really know how to build a routine and maximize your skills. And they clearly have that and maybe not everyone has that. So that might be part of it. Yeah, I think it's hard to know what looks good, especially when you're in the content. Yeah. I mean, even they were in some pool I was in and I was like, oh no. And they were seated like fourth or fifth. And I was like, well, this pool is broken because they're in it. And like they're a team that could easily win the whole tournament. But anyways, okay. I'm trying to think if there's any other non-competitive formats I had in my head. I feel like I already forgot one. Oh, one. Okay. One I want to ask you about Andre, because this is something you said in another conversation we had. So I just mentioned how, like, if you didn't know what was being banned, you would build thematic combinations so that you would avoid hopefully tripping a ban. But you mentioned to me earlier that you thought it was really important in freestyle, or at least the value in freestyle to 
have some kind of theme or storyline in your combos and you think a lot of players are missing that so one can you tell me more about that and two can you think of a competitive format that would somehow reward thematic combinations so yeah you said that combinations are a sentence and the sentence has interesting and non-interesting words but the important thing is that they flow together and i guess turbo shred kind of does that in a way but it doesn't exactly incentivize this but it's just like you can re-rev without huge consequences so i guess it could be some kind of turbo shred with a time limit maybe well let me pause right there we we used to have a time limit for turbo shred but i'm going to speculate that tiny room had a massive influence because this year's turbo shred that we just watched an hour or two ago there was hardly any re-revving compared to the old days mm -hmm. the old days it was a given that you would have in the middle of your combo a five second hit the you know what out of the disc to start over and like every combo was 45 seconds long and today we had a time limit for the entire group and i saw hardly any re-revving and i wonder if that's because in tiny room there was a time limit and two, we were pushing really hard as commentators of like, re-revving is bad, don't do it. But to talk about the sentence again, um, so much of freestyle is based on aesthetics and our sense of aesthetics. And I think there are combos that feel right and combos that feel disjointed just by which moves are strung together in a certain order. So, I mean, I don't have an answer for this, but I definitely feel when a combo is a good sentence. Yeah, I mean, I think there are like some things you can point to. So just random examples, like one thing we all do a lot that I still like, it kind of bothers me and I do it too sometimes, but it's like, it's kind of weird when you do a bunch of moves that are maybe, like maybe do a bunch of flat moves, like a bunch of double spinning, flat pulls, and then you start your brush run. <laughs> and it's like the brush run is, like if you had a choice, like if you're in a turbo shred event, yeah, like you do all your consecutive moves and you go into a brush run, that's fine. I can't fault you for that. But if you were in a jam, I would say, do your cool flat double spinning combo, catch that. And then the next time around, go on your brush run. And like this thing I think like Daniel's pretty good about this. Like Daniel has like sets up his brush run and he doesn't like put in a bunch of other nonsense before it. It's sort of like, Set it to me, I'm gonna yogi it, do the self-set yogi, go out there, kick it and start brushing. And like, that's very cohesive. And he's also really good at building up. So like random things you can do, like the thematic combo already helps you have a coherent sentence. Like if you're starting to do flat stuff, stick with your flat stuff. If you're starting to do technical skid stuff, stick with your technical skid stuff. And I'll also say this is, these are rules that are meant to be broken, but like these are good guideposts, like limitations are good. Like one theme of all this, I think, is that putting limits on yourself helps you grow and makes what you say more interesting, um, which should be a whole nother podcast, by the way. I think like you, Andre, play music. So I think like that will really speak to you. And maybe if we bring you back sometime, we'll talk about it. Um, but it's okay. So that's like one cheat code. Like how do I keep my combos cohesive? Like pick a lane and try to like find as many moves as you can in that lane. Two build to a climax and end so like, don't have like a bunch of really don't have like a really hard move and then do a bunch of really easy moves like that's that's like burying the lead or something like i, I may actually think it's the opposite of burying the lead but it's like you don't want to clutter up the part that's important you want to make the part that's important stand out and put it at the end it's like it's the exclamation point at the end of your sentence don't put it in the middle 
So again, rule one, think about having thematic combos. Rule two, try to build to a climax and then stop. I don't know if I have any more rules yet, but I'll give another example of this climax thing that drives me crazy. And I make this mistake. When I do it, it's because I didn't mean to. I hate it when someone does like a double or a triple and then does a single or a no spinning catch. I find it like very jarring. It's like once you set a certain level of spin, you have to either do the same or you have to go up or it looks really weird to me. So like imagine you get the disc, you do a double spinning pull, then you do like six non-spinning pulls and you set it for non-spinning catch. There's something about that to me that is very jarring. Like I need it to like start with no spins, work your way to one, end with two. No, I get, I feel that. Okay, are there any more rules we can have that help you? Like one rule that we talk about, this is a rule that's clearly meant to be broken sometimes, is have one move be the main focus of every combination. <laughs> Which a lot of times is the catch, but you know, it's sort of like, if you have two really sick moves you're going to do, make it two combos. And the time this is meant to be broken is when you can actually put them together consecutively. But what I don't like, it's like you do a really cool move, you do a bunch of nonsense, and then you do another cool move that's completely unrelated and it's kind of disjointed. And then there's some version of this that applies broad, more broadly of like when you build routines, just having a bunch of random moves or random combos at random times makes the routine feel very random. So like I tend to not only have thematic sections, like here's kind of a turnover section or like a brushing section, I also have like spacing sections, like here's where we're closer together, here's where they're further apart, here's where we're weaving, like, you know, things like that. So that's exactly what I was talking to one of my judging partners today when we were doing AI, uh, AI, yeah. Yeah. We were talking about how dynamically the players moved. So some, um, some jammers just stood in one place and it felt like they were doing the same move over and over again. Yeah. And other even non-experienced teams made a much more dynamic and interesting routine just by moving around and having these sections where they were close together and far apart. Again. Well, I had an experience with someone who I won't name, who when we were building the routine, they said, I feel like I'm moving around all the time. Like, why am I doing this? And I was like, exactly. <laughs> I will want you to be moving around all the time. So like a lot of time I build the routine and I'm like, okay, you catch it there and I'm going to come behind you over here. And they're like, why? Like, I can just throw it to you there. I'm like, because I don't want to stand here the whole time and you stand there the whole time. Let's, even if we don't have to move, like let's find a reason to move to make it interesting. And because like you said, like having that dynamic movement is so exciting. And I was thinking it's something that the audience gets and it like, it's more technically challenging, but so often the routine starts, player A stands over here, player B stands over here. And they just throw it back and forth and pass it back and forth. So try to take up space. And that also applies to jamming. Like if you are always in the same spot, you're always in the far right, the far left, in the back, in the front. Think about moving throughout the jam where you are. Like movement is good. Yeah. Another rule. Like there are some one-way gates, I think. So like the obvious one is once you go into the brush run, you can't delay it anymore. Yes. Oh, I've been noticing that with a couple of players. They get like a roll set and they kind of like almost like a little mini skid to try to like delay it again. I'm like, no, 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 no. Once it's in the air like that, your only options are brushing, rolling, kicking, catching. Like, there's okay. nothing else available. There's there's a couple of random exceptions. I mean, if Duke kicks it to you 
it adds 900 RPM and it's upside on counter. If you do an invert delay off of that, I'm not going to be mad about it. <laughs> but most of the time when it's in the air, it's got to stay in the air. And I think that fits well with what you said, Andre, about like kind of having that storyline. It's like, okay, now we're in the air. So let's keep it there. Cool. Any other non-competitive formats from anybody? I have one last one. Hit me. So I talk about this a lot in the podcast where we need more talking content. So you're at the festival, you need a stage for this. You like pull up a random audience member on the stage. It's like a magician bringing up like for a magic act and you do the Duke method and you teach them and you're, you're like, your voice is like on a speaker so everyone can hear what you're saying. And well, you, just, you already totally stole this from me. I had a routine idea where I was going <laughs> to teach someone how to freestyle during the routine and by the end of the three or four minutes they would do like some sick combination with me but i love i love that it would also be a great like it's like the teacher's competitive format you bring like the eight most respected freestyle educators and you're like here's eight randomly selected people who have agreed to participate you must teach them how to jam in the context of a routine with music or something. I don't know. Hang on, but now you've just made something competitive that is non-competitive. So you've done the opposite. <laughs> That's true. I mean, we, we kind of said at the beginning we were bridging between competitive and non-competitive formats. Just I, other other event formats. Yeah, maybe. I think, and I think there's overlap. And, you know, one thing I also want to say, which we haven't really mentioned, is like just kind of like one of my themes in this whole podcast is like sometimes we vilify things unnecessarily. So there's one view that some people have of like competition is lame and like we shouldn't care about it or we care too much about it and there's an element of truth in that for sure there's a lot of like negativity that goes into competition but competition itself isn't necessarily the problem and it has lots of values beyond declaring who's the best freestyler at this event like like there's a good argument to say yeah like competition shouldn't be all about finding the winner but about doing lots of other things like giving people a goalpost of like, I'm preparing for this tournament and I'm going to like jam a little more and practice a little more, or like be a little bit healthier this month to be prepared. And there's also lots of goals that don't involve winning. Like I'm going to try to do this thing that I've been working on in the routine. It's like, there's lots of positive things in competition. So I know like some people might be listening and being like, wow, like James took teaching someone and turned it into really Ryan did it. Ryan was just a routine. Like Ryan took the beautiful act of teaching and made it a competition how evil but like that's not really what it's about like it's about something else and just kind of like limitations are good competition creates limitations and like limitations are what allow you to grow and like think about things in new ways so i think that's like a super positive aspect of competition i guess we're just gamifying the game all all of these events are just gamifying the game (laughs) freestyle yeah i guess one other note that we talked a little bit about, and I won't go into too much, but Ryan is very pro gamifying the game. Or really, Ryan's more of a pro like gamifying anything. Or like, <laughs> I'm like, totally, totally on board. Like Ryan likes it if you do abuse the system, and a lot of people don't like that. And I have like mixed feelings. Here I'm like more in the middle of it, but I see especially with these kind of more eccentric or idiosyncratic formats, like it is the point to game the system and. That's the fun of it. It's like everyone's trying to figure out the way to beat the system. Like I, one of my goals when thinking about the current judging system and the routine format is to make it as neutral as possible so that people can succeed in different ways. But I think there's something really exciting about creating very non-neutral formats that force people to try to play in a specific way, even if it's temporary, just to like see what happens and what it means. No delays.
No delays is a great, yeah. like, I think Dan was talking about, like, that would be a super cool format. Like, you can't delay. And one throw only. Now that's now <laughs> we're getting, getting a little crazy. But no delays would be pretty cool. Okay, so I think with that, I think we did, we did all right here. Andre, how was your experience? I had a great time. Thanks for having me. Okay, you're a second, you're a second guest. That's a very illustrious position. I'm honored. Okay, cool. With that, check us out at clockercounter.com. Subscribe to the podcast, all that, yada, yada, yada. And we'll see you next time.